every time I was able to get a loan, I was doing drugs. I've been to prison four times, twice in the state, twice in the fed. I was doing all this crazy stuff, cooking drugs and just staying high. God called me from a prison cell. I was a homeless drug addict and my hope was found in a needle. pregnant, homeless, um, living out of my van. You know, it wasn't Freeway that saved me. It wasn't John Stroop that saved me. But God uses Freeway in such a mighty way as a tool to reach these people. There's not a community or a county in America that doesn't have a drug problem. And the, the church has the answer, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Welcome to One Broken Life. Uh, my name is John Stroop. I just want to encourage you to continue to uh, stay tuned with us and, and um, continue to watch and, and, and see how God has continued to use uh, messed up people. Uh, the bigger the mess, the bigger the message. Uh, this is a product, a, a production, excuse me, this is a production of Freeway Ministries. Um, we're going to explore the different uh, unique lives and conversations with people. Uh, the transformation that Christ brings, um, and we have a guy on on our show today, on on our podcast today, uh, Mr. Paul Choate, and um, Paul has been a, become a friend of mine. Um, Paul actually has a, a powerful, powerful testimony. Uh, we do believe that sometimes the bigger the mess, the bigger the message, and so I just want to uh, welcome Paul Choate to our podcast today. Thanks for coming, Paul. How you doing today? Good, sir. Good. Um, and so, uh, w you hear about the negative impact that drugs and crime make on our community. Um, you hear about the the fatherless homes, and you 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 see the prisons are full, right? Um, some countries say you can you should just put a prison wall around America, you know, because I don't know if people realize this or not, but there's more prisons in America than the world can bind. So if you take, and you can research this and look it up but if you take every other country in the world and you combine their prisons we have more prisons in America and so uh, in the, the the direct result of drug addiction and in my opinion is crime right uh, crime and drug addiction go together and you hear about that you hear about it on the news you know there's always some heinous story about someone doing something just out of this world flushing babies down a toilet I mean just crazy stuff. But what you don't hear enough about is the radically changed drug addict, the, the radically changed convict, the person who the world had given up on, said was hopeless, voted most likely to you know, spend the rest of their life in prison, amount to nothing, but, but they met Jesus, right? And then Jesus radically transformed that person. And we see that all through the Gospels. We see, and even in the Old Testament, how how God reaches those messed up people and um, transforms their, their lives. And so that's why we're doing this. Um, we want to share stories of hope and restoration and explore lives. There are a lot of people that are going to watch this, Paul, and they don't understand where we come from. When I say we, the pronoun we means our people group, right? Right. People who come from our background. 
And so I want to explore your life today. Uh, we may do one show, uh, two shows, but we may do three. We may, you know, depend on our conversation here today. And so I just want to welcome you uh, to the show. So my first question for you, Paul, is what was your childhood like? You know, my childhood was different, man. You know, um, <clears throat> as I've said, I, you know, I grew up in a predominantly white family. And so being the only black kid in the family, uh, it was hard. You know, my uncles and, and you know, they was racist people. And so um, trying to find comfort in that, in that family was hard, but it wasn't hard because when, when, when certain uncles come around, you knew what to expect. And so I understood that, that for them, they was raised up like that. And then all of a sudden, your dad says, hey, we're not like that no more. We're not racist anymore. And they're going, what do you mean? You know, these guys are in their early 20s at the time. And so um, drugs, crime, all of that was a part of my childhood. I grew up in one of the biggest drug houses in Springfield, Missouri, um, up until I was about seven. Uh, I would say probably around the age of four or five, I knew what it looked like to shoot dope. As a matter of fact, I knew what it was like if you said, hold your arm, you didn't have to tell me twice before I was old enough to go to school. And so being exposed to that and then, and then seeing my uncle get killed by the police uh, kind of dictated what happened for the next 40 years of my life. Um, I remember it like it was yesterday, you know, they, you know, the police was kicking the doors in and they was holding us on the ground with guns. You know, we was seven years old, you know, we was, we was, we was children. And, uh, ultimately, you know, they was looking for my mom's little brother. They wanted him. He was a dangerous man. He was real dangerous. Um, to anybody around him, it didn't matter who it was. He was a dangerous guy. Um, big drug dealer, biker, you know, he, he was 26 years old when they killed him. And so um, up to that point, um, that was what we was exposed to. He always lived with my mom. And so his drama became our drama. And uh, once he was killed, life started to change. Kind of. Uh, I was still around drugs and crime, but at that point, like I said, you know, a decision had been made in my mind where I had an authority issue. And so everything in my life from then on was about doing what I wasn't supposed to do, to be defiant about everything that went on in my life. And so as far as school, uh, I done well. You know, I was a straight A student. I went to school. You know, I abused my teachers. Uh, I fought after school. Uh, we smoked weed on the way to school. You know, at this time we're eight or nine years old, you know, and, and uh, I had a couple of friends. We took turns stealing joints you know, from our parents. And sports was always something that we'd done, but uh, as I got older, I started to realize it was an opportunity for our parents to get us out of the house. You know, go play this, go do that, or whatever. Uh, my biological father was never really in my life. Um, I knew who he was, he knew who I was, and uh, <clears throat> I just had nothing to do with him. And so I believe that my parents done the best that they could. <clears throat> as I've said before, you know, uh, my stepdad went to prison. Him and my uncle was best friends. And while he was in Greene County Jail, that's where I learned how to move drugs. I was seven years old. And they would let me go around the wall and sit on his lap. You know, and 
and I would have an ounce of weed, bottles of whiskey in my waistband. And, and so when I would go around and sit on his lap, I would be on the opposite side of my mother. So I was locked up with him. And they would just pull it, he would pull it out and hand it to his friend. And, and so I learned then what it looked like and what it was like to move drugs. And so part of the process is we learned how to bag it up, take it in, you know, how to put it in straws. And, and, and I would have straws all, you know, on my body. And they would let me, lock me in a cell with my dad. And, and I could just give it to him and leave. Uh, he came home from prison a few years later and swore off of drugs. And he still smoked pot, but our lives changed because we went from complete chaos to my dad working 60, 70 hours a week, my mom working 40 hours a week. And and so I was kind of left to do the things that I want, whatever I wanted to do. Um, I was forced to go to church on Sundays again. You know, it was a thing to get the kids out of the house. And uh, by the time I was 13, you know, I was shooting dope. I'm, I'm, I'm a child, man. In between my eighth and ninth grade year, I got introduced to, to shooting dope. And I started shooting methamphetamines, which at that time was, was, was something that black people just didn't do. Right. But like I said, I was in a predominantly white environment. Every, all of my friends was white. Uh, my father wasn't in my life. Uh, you know, I'd see some guys that, of color at the boys club, but to me, they was different because I was accepted in another a whole nother group of people. And so um, it forced me to fight. And so you take a black guy and put him in that arena, somebody always has something to say. So I always had to be willing to go above and beyond to be accepted by a lot of people who, who it's kind of funny at this point in my life to think about it because I wanted them guys to respect me. And I knew that I had to work harder than my cousin did or than my friend. They was all white. Uh, I, as soon as I walked in the house, you know, you can, you, you, you can see it. it. You know, it changes. And it's funny because we've talked about, and I know it's kind of different for me and you. You hung out with a lot of black people. Right. And I didn't. I hung out with a lot of white people. So I'm sure you know exactly kind of like what it's like. Because I lived with a black girl for four and a half years. Yeah. And her family. Yeah. So in the hood. Right. <laughs> so it's it's walk, just, and walking didn't have a car, so right. we had to walk everywhere. Yeah. So it's 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 different. So you know, like I say, I got arrested, caught a robbery when I was thirteen, and went to you know got locked up, and and so I just continued on. You know, at that point, it was who's going to sell drugs and who's going to do what. You know, I was a thief. Uh, me and everybody I knew, that's what we did. We stole day and night. Uh, Eight o'clock in the morning, we went to work doing burglaries. Uh, at nighttime, we stole. Uh, we had one buddy, uh, Jim Bob, and he sold drugs. That's what he done. That was his job. And so we always had drugs and we always had money because we always stole. That's what we did. And uh, our validation, my validation was in that. That was what people knew about me is that he had drugs and he stole it all the time. He always had a bunch of stuff. And, <clears throat> you know, they certified me when I was 16. So, you know, I think back and, and you know, you said something when we first started about your hope was in a needle. And I, I, I never really, I don't know. I don't know if I ever really looked at it like that. But, like, I stayed high all the time. And it wasn't like 
well, I'm going to go get high. I haven't been high. No, I stayed high. I would stay up until my body completely stopped. Eyes wide open, but my body wouldn't move. I hadn't eaten or drank anything for days. Right. And so uh, around 16, I got certified. My cousin got certified. So uh, <clears throat> we caught a rash of burglaries. I mean, we was, you know, we was burglarizing everything in the city. It didn't matter. We stole anything. It wasn't locked down that we could sell. And uh, I went to prison, you know. And so pretty much for for from the age of 17 to to 37, my life consisted of cooking drugs, gang banging, and stealing. That's what we done. That's what I done. That was my validation wasn't in 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 anything right. Uh, jobs I wasn't doing them. I was gonna steal. So you, so you went to prison. How old were you? I was 17. So let me just as we're talking through this so people can understand. So you're 17 years old. How long did you go to prison for your first time? 13. I got. I had 13 years for uh, a burglary, escape, and receiving stolen property. So you got 13 years as a minor. Yeah. And, and so you're this black guy in an all-white world, right? Uh, your family's white. Your mom's white. Your dad's white. I mean, your, your dad is white. Absolutely. Um, but you're black. Yeah. And back then, racism was cool. Super cool. Right. And so uh, black people were racist. White people were racist. I mean, it's just racism, period, right? It was bad. Yeah, both ways. And I never, you know, you never see racism from the other side, right? I had never been exposed to black people that hated white people. Right. Until I went to prison the first time. And so... I'm, I'm, prison was dark at that time. Like there was maybe one or two white guys in each wing, not like today. And so when you walked in, it was like, you know, you got this little light skin, good haired, pretty. Yeah, because I was pretty, and I still am. What? We ain't gonna play no game, but I act white, I talk white. You know, I, uh, you know, I get tapes, and it's Aldo Nova and ACDC and Elton John. You know, the the blackest album I got was Lionel Richie. You know, and they're looking at me like, where'd this guy come from? There's people listening right now that don't even know any of those groups. You <laughs> You're giving your age away, man. But go ahead, keep it up. Yeah, so, you know, them guys are looking at me like, where is this? what planet are you from? And so that pushed me into a whole nother arena. I had to start fighting because I was looked at as different, you know. And so, uh, you know, they, 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 there's terms for people that act like that. Right. And, uh, and so that term was fighting words for me. So that was what I'd done. And, and so I fought all the time. So when I got out of prison, I was about 22. Let's back up. So when did you join a gang? When, so before I go to prison, I meet a guy uh, here in Springfield, and he was a blood. And so a bunch of his friends went to prison when I did. We was in prison together. And so at that point, I started hanging with a lot of bloods. And so I joined that gang in prison. And uh, it was kind of silly because when I come home, uh, uh, I've done my testimony with this guy before, Mark Deeds, and they had pictures of me on the yard with a red rag on and this and that. And the first gang shooting had happened like, like two weeks before I got home. And so a lot of the guys that, that I grew up with, we was all bloods. And so when I came home, 
my cousins are three or four years younger than me, so they were still in high school. And I recruited all these guys, and, and this is what we're going to do. And so that's what we did. And so we became what was known as Lafayette Park Bloods. And Lafayette Park is in my neighborhood. It's a half a block from my mama's house where I grew up. And that was where we stayed. Uh, and we gangbanged for a couple of years. And uh, it was getting out of hand. Uh, the Springfield Police, the city, uh, the community, they attacked it. And, and the way they did it was if, if your house got tagged, if your property got tagged, the city would knock on your door and give you 24 hours to fix it. And if you didn't fix it, they would fix it and charge you. Or you start notifying us when these guys are hanging out on these corners, we'll put a stop to it. So it was one of the things the community got on board with it quick and it kind of faded out. Uh, it still goes on out here today. It was a lot different then because it was just Bloods and Crips and they had some guys from out of town, but uh, ultimately that's about what it lasted here for me was two years. And, and even still today, I'm known as somebody that, that is a blood. Um, I just don't participate in that stuff anymore. So what about prison? I mean, you, you, you're in prison, you're in a prison gang, you know, and then that's not your first time. So you've got 13 years. Yeah. So you, now you're affiliated, you know, but every time you go, you're affiliated. Absolutely. And, uh. So how much time did you do on 13 years? So I did, initially, I did four years, almost five. And and I was released for maybe a year, and I went back. And so while I was there, I was back for about seven, eight months and got out and went on the run immediately. And about a year later, I went back and finished it. So there was a nice, I mean, I may have been out a year and a half, maybe two and a half years on a whole 13-year uh, prison sentence. Okay. So... Uh, how much time have you done in prison, Paul? Uh, 27 years. You've spent 27 years of your life in prison? Yep. How old are you? 51. You admitted it. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been in prison 20-something years off and on your whole life, more of your life in prison than you've been on the street. Yep. And, uh, you know, now you're a Christian. You know, we're going to talk about your conversion and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, did you ever seek the Lord in prison? You know, like I said, I grew up going to church. And so uh, I never really seek the Lord. I read the Bible. I kept a Bible on my TV all the time. You know, you always hear people say one Proverbs a day, one Proverbs a day. And so there would be stretches where, where I would go for six months and read it every day. And there would be times I wouldn't. Um, I wasn't a guy that went to prison and used drugs. I sold drugs in prison, but I didn't use drugs. And and I always had one idea, and that was to get back to what I wanted to do, which was get high on the streets. There was a lot of consequences, so I thought in prison for people that got high, I seen a lot of stuff happen. Right. And uh, I avoided that. Um, I would rather sell drugs and try to control the compound than to use drugs and be sitting in the hole. And I know that sounds silly. I, I think about it and I talk about it a lot. You go to prison and you completely conform to the structure inside the prison because you don't want to do 10 or 15 days in the hole. But you come out in society and break every rule you can and lose your freedom. So, so you, 13 years old, shooting dope, grew up in this 
toxic environment, right? Real toxic. And uh, and then your mind is not okay because you know you're black in a white world, I right. mean, literally. And so, um, so let's talk about that place of brokenness because people are listening and thinking, man, where are we headed? You know, and I know that's not who you are today. You're not. Paul the blood, you're not Paul the convict, you're not Paul the drug addict, you're Paul the man of God. And, uh, you know, and I call you my friend, and I, I believe in you, man. I believe that I believe you are who you say you are today, you know. And uh, and so let's kind of talk about the conversion. You know, one broken life, that's kind of one, one one of the things that we we knock, we, we really push here um, because what God, what God can do through one per- person, you know, movements i mean just things that happen through one broken life and so let's talk about your brokenness like the the place where you came to that that where did that begin 27 years of keep keep repeating the pattern keep going back to the same old same old so where did you come where was your brokenness at how did that happen you know i was about 47 and uh i'd been on the run for a few years and they caught me and uh while I was in the Greene County Jail, uh, they, they they used to have these prayer circles at night in the in the rec room, and uh, my every intention was to break this up. I told a friend of mine, "Man, I'm gonna go bust that up. I get sick of these guys that this, you know, they come to jail and the first thing they do is run to a prayer circle or, or they run to the church and they're, you know they're holy or holier than thou all of a sudden, you know and." And uh, some people refer it to it as prison religion, and and I and I don't really agree with that. You know, I don't think there's no such thing as prison religion. I think that that people go into that, uh, and God's touching them however He touches them at that time. Seeds are being planted, whether they follow through or not. So I go in here anyway, and I go to break it up, and I'm being loud and obnoxious, and 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 this guy just starts talking to me about Jesus. So when I walk out of the rec room, I got tears in my eyes. And uh, my friend Robert said, what just happened? I said, I don't know, man. I think somebody just introduced me to Jesus in there, you know. And I've had guys in my life, you know, my pastor, Scott Watson, you know, he's, he's, he's been on me for 35 years. And so I bonded out of jail, and I left it there at the door. Uh, I knew I wasn't all in. So I get back to the streets and start selling drugs again. And 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 I remember a tugging in my heart to get a Bible. And and I've said it before, I went in Martell's and stole the Bible. And so I would be sitting in front of the trap house reading the Bible and selling drugs. What's Martell? Martell's is a Christian bookstore in Springfield. Okay. And so uh I had gotten to a point to where I was I was I was forty seven. I had a brand new baby. Uh, she was, you know, I mean, she was born, you know, that earlier that year. And I just remember every day in my mind, you know, it was just the Satan was working on me. You know, you're nothing. You'll never be nothing. You're going back to prison for an undetermined amount of time, you know. And, and, and I really had no idea how long I was going back to prison for. Actually, I expected to go back to prison for at least 14 years. And, uh. I just didn't know, and and so the more I read, the more I read, and and so finally, I wanted to commit suicide, and and because the devil had me convinced that I wasn't going to be able to be a father to this 
this this new baby I had. I my parents had put their house up for me to get out of jail. I jumped on. I couldn't go home. hadn't been home to my mama's house in eight months. And uh, you know I was crushed over it, but I wasn't willing to turn myself in so they could have their house back neither. And uh, and I, and and I I remember for days it was just it was just. That's what it was. You're nothing. You'll never be nothing. You're going back to prison. This is who you are, and this is how it's going to end. And I remember the first night I thought about suicide, I had a pistol. And I thought, you know, if, 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 if I shoot myself, I'm the guy that would probably live and have to suffer through the rest of my life. And a couple of days later, I had a gun that I knew, and I knew. And so um, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, man. And I'm sitting in the front yard with an AK-47. This is it. And uh, this girl knocked on my door. And and she said, God loves you. The door of your vehicle? Of my vehicle. And I, you know, and it, she scared me. And she come around my truck and I rolled the window down because I'm really freaked out, you know. And uh, she asked me for some drugs. And I said, yeah, you can have some. So I give her a big bag of drugs and she takes off walking. And I just sit there with tears running down my face, and, and I watched her. And then, of course, that I want to know who she is now. Where'd you come from? I never found her. Uh, two days later, I got arrested mowing a yard over here on, on the corner of Sherman and uh, or Clay and Division. And I remember, I remember at the hospital, all the way to jail, I just wanted a Bible. I didn't care about a phone call. I didn't care about anybody knowing where I was at or that it was over. I just needed a Bible. And I've never been a guy who went to Greene County Jail and got farmed out. That's not what they do with me. They keep me there. Um, because they knew I could run a pod for them. And the older staff knew if we put Paul Chode as a trustee, we don't have to do anything. He can control the pod. And so they transferred me to Henry County. And I thought, and I wasn't, you know, it didn't bother me. I wasn't mad about it. I just wanted to read. I just wanted to read the Bible, and that was it. And and so I was there for about a month. And I laid in a bed for, for, for about a month, and I read my Bible every day. I walked the rec yard, and I, and I used to pray. And I would, you know, I wasn't tripping on commissary. I wasn't tripping on my girlfriend, you know, I didn't care about nothing. At this point, I cared about one thing, and that was a Bible. And so in the beginning, uh, God was pushing this faith and trust thing on me. Um, like I said, my girlfriend, she wanted to know about this, and she wanted to know about that. And at this point, I'm like, look, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. Well, you're trying to be a Christian, and you're doing this, and I said, no, I am a Christian. I've accepted Jesus Christ into my heart as my Lord and Savior, period. And But there was things I didn't want to deal with. I was still holding on to some things. And and God kept the, the you know, faith and trust, faith and trust. So I ended up just giving her what she wanted. And uh, knowing, you know, I'm going back to prison. And, and, and in my mind, it's like if I run her off, what what's next? You know, I'm going to do this time by myself because I don't even know if my parents are going to, you know what I mean? I, I don't know at this point. Like, they almost lost their house. They're elderly. 
and and so what, my, what year is that, Paul? That was in 2017. Okay. And so I went back to prison. Uh, man, God showed up. It was it was the craziest thing because you know I, I caught six new cases on a on a probation, fourteen year probation, and 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 I went to court for the probation violation and the prosecutor wants it to be executed and I remember just standing in court thinking about First John four four. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world and I said it to my attorney three or four times before before we went in the courthouse the courtroom. And, I, and it was just, you know, if you've ever sit back and just watch something, it's like, you know, the, the judge, it, you know, he, he's, are you, why are you pressing this on me? We'll wait and do it all. And he started my probation over with today. I said, starting it over with? He said, yeah, you, you, we're going to reinstate it. It starts today. And I thought, wow, God showed up today. And I remember going back to jail, and, and, and I was doing Bible studies, and we was doing big prayer circles in the middle of the wing, and there was staff that would try to stop us because it's not allowed. You know, more than two people praying together is not allowed in the jail, you know, and I never understood that. If you've got in God we trust on the back of your cars, why is this? And so they wouldn't bother me. There would be 30 guys in the middle of the wing, and we would be praying and reading the Word of God together. And I knew at that point that, that God had me right where he wanted me. And, and, and I was fortunate that I had some guys around me who kind of just groomed me at that time. And, and so that was when I started to see, you know, how God was going to use me. Because a lot of people came in and they sat at that table because I, because I was sitting at that table. And I was a baby Christian, man. And I thought I was on top of the world. You know, I was sharing the gospel with whoever. You know, I, come here, let me talk to you for a minute. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you're, when you're a baby Christian, you don't really know nothing. You know enough to, to, to get somebody's attention. But, uh, man, I just started using it. I just started living out the, the word. I started seeing what the Bible said about the things that I was doing. And it was crazy because the, the, the same day, Stuart Huffman come to see me. Who's that? He was my attorney. But he wasn't my attorney on this, but he's always been my attorney. And so I had said, look, Stuart, here's the deal. Man, I'm done. I don't have nothing or nobody. Uh, you might have to take this case for free. <laughs> and so he come down to the jail to see me, and he says, well, let me email him and see what's going on. He goes, ah, you don't need it. They're giving you five years on six new cases. So I'm like, okay, you know, and I, I'd, I'd been praying. Please, God, don't send me back to prison. <laughs> and it wasn't a foxhole prayer. I didn't want to go back to prison, and I definitely didn't want to go back to prison and talk about God. But at that point, I was willing to. If God called me to be in prison and talk about him, then I was willing to do that. And so I knew I had to go to two and a half years. I was ready for it. Um, and it was a hard transition because you go back to prison as somebody who's known for moving drugs on the prison yard. Um, being in situations to control a lot of stuff, not only on the yard, but in the administration, to somebody who is in the chapel all day. Right. Being the word of God all day. And so uh, I've always played handball and basketball, but as soon as I got to Tipton, my knees went out completely. And I felt like God was saying, pick this word up and read it. 
And so that's what I did. And as soon as I was able to go to work release, my knees stopped hurting and I went. But I continued to do the Bible studies. I continued to go to church when I could. And so then I had to do a year of treatment and, you know, and, and, and there were some things in there I'd done that I didn't want to, that I shouldn't have done, you know, uh, as far as moving tobacco, I was in a place where I could make this stuff happen. And, uh, there was a guy that just graduated freeway and, I'm, I, and, and he don't realize how big of an impact he had on my life. And so Sean and I had gotten real cool Yeah. and I was outside smoking and he come out the door and I tried to hide it from him. And I said, I'm done. And I put it down. And so uh, I just started to, to utilize the people around me. And in, in prison, if you can focus on certain rules, small things, and follow them, uh, the more trust I had in God, the easier it was for me to do things. And so I stayed with that. I didn't call home and tell everybody about this newfound, you know, I'm a Christian and this is what you can expect from me. I didn't say it to anybody. I just said, you'll see. I remember uh, meeting you in prison, and we're going we're gonna to have to close this episode here in a second, and, and uh, we'll, they'll have to just catch us on the second one as we continue this conversation. But uh, your best friend was Barry Agee. Oh, and. And uh, he he got saved at Freeway, you know. And in our theme verse for the one broken life is Psalm fifty one, Psalm fifty one. I think it's seventeen. Uh, I got it in front of me. Let me look. Psalm fifty one seventeen. Yeah, the sacrifices of God are a, a broken and a, and a contrite spirit. Um, the Bible says it's a broken and a contrite spirit. Oh, oh God, you won't deny or you won't despise, you know. And uh, it's that broken, broken that place of brokenness. And I tell people all the time. Rock bottom is in a place as a state of mind. Yeah. And so, you know, you could say sometimes people look at a person's life and they could say, well, what? how farther down can they go? Well, it's not about your physical place where you're at. It's not about losing stuff or people dying. You know, you could go through traumatic things in your life and not be broken and then have something that doesn't seem as traumatic happen. And that thing will bring you to your place of brokenness. And it's when you're done, right? Right. And so you came to that place where you were done. You're in prison. You're studying the word. You're about to get out for the last time, right? Yeah, absolutely. This is it. Ain't no more going back. Well, ain't no more going back. And so, you know, we talked about your past. We talked about you coming into that place of brokenness. Um, and, and now that we're going we're gonna to come back and talk about, you know, your, your transition period back into society, 27 years in prison. What's going to happen now, right? Um, the difference, what is the difference? How are you going to survive? How are you going to make it? How are you going to be a Christian in the real world, in the free world, you know? Because it's easy to be a Christian in prison. I mean, it's, it may not be easy, but it's easier, right? You don't have the Brown Derby in prison. You don't have the women in prison. Uh, you don't have the, 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 uh, the access as easy, in my opinion, of drugs. And, and stuff like that in prison. You don't have the cars in prison, I mean, um, the money. And so you're about to exit prison now, and you're going to have to practice pr pr Christianity in the free world. And so we're going to talk about that on our next podcast. If you've, enjoy, if you've enjoyed uh, this podcast, would you do me a favor and would you share share this One Broken Life podcast on your Facebook page with your friends? 
uh, like us on on Freeway Ministries, Freeway Ministries Facebook, Freeway Ministries, or One Broken Life Podcast, or both. If you want to support Freeway Ministries, you can uh, send us a check if you want to help us continue to reach people. Uh, Freeway Ministries, P.O. Box 8655, Springfield, Missouri, 65803. Or you can support us through the freeway-ministries.com uh, website. Thank you for joining us as we reach one broken life at a time. This is John Stroop and Paul Choke.